I want to minister for a few minutes this morning through a message I'm calling the remediation qualities of grace. What I want you to see through the message this morning is that grace does not end with the single act of salvation. It's really just the opposite. That's where grace begins. Furthermore, the law is absolutely no substitute for grace. And grace does not need the law's help. Grace is everything that the law cannot do. Grace is Jesus Christ personified. The Bible says we are justified. That means we are declared righteous. We are declared innocent. We are declared by the word pure. We are made right with God by simply placing our trust, placing our faith in Jesus' finished work. Now, I generally don't have to wrestle with my critics or hecklers, and I'm going to tell you, I've got something out there. If you live in the social media world, you'll find out very quickly you've got some critics. I don't care who you are. I don't get any feedback if I made a statement that we are saved by Jesus' amazing grace. I don't get any uh, feedback from that. But when I minister that we are also kept righteous by faith in Jesus' finished work, and when I minister in a way that says we are made holy by Jesus' body on the cross apart from our own works, this is where you wake up the hecklers. This is where you wake up the persecution. And I think it's kind of where the angina, the spiritual angina uh, begins for the religious people. Their religious hearts simply cannot take a message that is so radically different than what they grew up with. And I totally understand that. So I'm not being critical about that. But whatever we grow up with, it forms us. It, it sets up in our heart. And it's hard to change. In fact, most of the time we don't want to change. Even if we're facing deeper truth or expounded truth, we don't want to change. We get comfortable in our doctrine. We get comfortable in believing in a certain way. We have answers to people. We can explain it in a way. That means we have to change things. And if you've heard me say before, we've changed a lot of things in the way we believe. But we have to do something with Romans chapter 3 verse 19 and 20. I mean, I want you to look at these two scriptures and I want you to be honest with yourselves. They say this. Now we know that whatever the law says, in other words, what it's saying, whatever's been written in the law, the law has a voice, it's in letters, but the law has a voice. So it says, whatever the law says, it says to those, and when it says to those, it doesn't mean to everybody. It literally means to those that want to listen to it. It says, whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, or another way to say it, who are under the influence of the law. You can be under the influence of the law and still be a believer. You can. In fact, a big portion of the body of Christ is kind of there. So whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Now, I want you to take your eyes and I want you to gaze and then lock them on a couple of words coming up. It says, therefore, look at those two words, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. Friends, this is the way the Holy Spirit said it to me. He said, a plumber's toolbox is a terrible substitute for a first aid kit. It's just a terrible substitute. It is. And the law is a terrible substitute for the blood of Jesus Christ. I mean, when believers are hurting and they need the comfort from the scriptures, they're not looking for the law. The law is a terrible substitute for grace. It's a terrible substitute for Jesus' shed blood. So let me ask you a question. According to Romans 3, verse 19 and 20, look at it. What is the purpose of the law? Well, it tells you right there in verse 20. The purpose of the law is to make someone conscious of 
sin. Listen, if I swallow gasoline, I don't need to read the fine print on the side of a gas can to realize that was a bad decision. My body will tell me that. And you know what? As a believer, I don't need to read the law and the fine print of the law to help me make decisions and to govern my actions or to remediate problems. We have the Holy Spirit, the Bible says. Who? What does he do? He guides us into all truth and righteousness. So a couple of questions. Is the law in effect for the believer? And should the law communicate to us? Does the law have a voice to us when we feel like something is wrong? Well, the answer to those two questions is the same. The answer is no. How do we know? Because the vocal cords of the law were clipped by the scissors of grace through faith in Jesus Christ. I do not let the law tell me what I need to do and what I don't need to do. I have the Holy Spirit and he is always communicating Papa's heart. Romans 6.14 says these words, For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law, but under grace. Underscore those words in your heart this morning. You are not under the law. In other words, you're not under the commands of the law. You're not under the influence of the law. You're not under the voice of the law. You're not under the direction of the law. You are under grace. Now, this past week at my work, I had to recertify in CPR and first aid. I told the class, well, I don't save only on Sundays. Now I can save any day of the week. <laughs> Amen. But I had to recertify. And uh, two years ago when I took that class, I learned a lot of things about CPR and first aid. And I almost didn't take the class again. But you know what? I'm glad I did because I learned more things. I mean, it covers a lot of things. It's a seven-hour class but it covers what to do with burns and people having strokes and people going into diabetic comas and heart attacks and cardiac arrest and strokes and the list goes on. But there's this one module toward the end that deals with tourniquets. Now tourniquets are a device that are only used in extreme, extreme situations. You never put one around your waist, you never put one around your neck, but you would only use it on your arms and your legs. And the only time you would use a tourniquet is if the wound is so severe that you would bleed out before they could get medical attention for you. And so this tourniquet is like a belt-like device, and when you wrap it around a wound, which is about usually about two inches above the actual wound, you begin to ratchet it down until it cuts off the blood supply to the tissue below it. And the one thing I learned about the tourniquet is you basically have about two hours before a lot of damage begins to set in because what you have done is you have almost cut off the blood supply and the oxygen and the nutrients that the tissue needs. So within two hours, you're going to have some sort of damage with all the tissue below the tourniquet. And if you leave it on in an extreme case where you can't get a person to a medical facility for six hours, then everything underneath that tourniquet is going to have to be amputated. So what is my point? My point is this, you cannot leave dead flesh connected to living tissue without it continuing to destroy the living tissue also. And it's the same thing with the law. Take that concept one time. If you leave the law in place with righteousness, if you leave the law in place with grace, when we come into this relationship with Jesus through faith, what happens is the law is cut away like dead tissue. Friends, we were crucified with Christ. Therefore, we live with Christ. The dead tissue, or another way to say it, we would say the old nature was cut away. This is where the remediation qualities of grace begins. The root word of remediation, can you hear it? It is remedy, remediation, remedy. The root word of remediation is remedy, and remedy is synonymous with cure. And when we talk about remediation, when we talk about remediating a home, remediating a building, it speaks of the removal of harmful contaminants. It speaks of things like toxins like mold and lead and asbestos. And it's the removal of those things. 
At the core of every one of our hearts, we desire to see a cure for the contaminants of sickness and pain. Come on. We desire to see a cure for the contaminants of guilt and shame and fear and condemnation. We desire to see a cure manifest for the contaminant of isolation and the general overall feeling of hopelessness. And you know what the truth of the matter is? There's a lot of people that are dealing with these things on an adult level daily. Yet in the deepest core of our heart, we say, yes, we desire a cure for these things. These are just a smattering of the harmful issues. I mean, we could be here all day talking about harmful issues, but let's talk about the remedy. Let me say it another way. If you were to hire a remediation expert and they were to come to your job site, your home or whatever it is, the first thing you would know is they would begin to speak in jargon a lot of words that you're not familiar with. And then what would happen is that expert would nail his credentials. He would nail his permit to the wall that says, I have a right to be here and work on your property. I have a right to be here. Friends, that's what happened to Jesus. He came unto his own speaking words that they had never heard before, a jargon they weren't familiar with. He came to his own with heavenly credentials and a plan of remediation. And what did they do to him? They nailed him to a cross. And what were some of the words? What did they sound like? Some of the words that Jesus was speaking that ultimately got him nailed to a cross. They were words like, bless those that curse you and pray for those who despitefully use you. The Pharisees hated that kind of language. When Jesus said to the paralytic, he said, son, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees hated that. When Jesus said to the man laying by the pool of Bethesda, when he said, rise, take up your bed and walk. And then out of all the days of the week he had to do it on, it was the Sabbath. And the Pharisees hated him for that. You're breaking the Sabbath, religious. No, the man needs a tourniquet. When Jesus said to the woman who had the issue of blood, daughter, your faith has made you whole. Oh, they hated that. That woman's got an issue of blood. She's not even supposed to be in public. And she just touched you. And then you have the audacity to tell her that her faith made her whole. They hated that. What kind of people are we dealing with? Are you serious? I mean, can't you celebrate somebody's victory? <laughs> I would want to celebrate it. If I saw something happen to somebody like that, I'd go, I mean, I would be jumping up more so than them. Going, look what my daddy just did. Look what he's done. When Jesus stood and said words like, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to my daddy except through me. Oh, oh man. Did you just call him father? That's exactly what I just did. No one comes to my father. And I am the way, not a way. I am the truth, not a truth. I am the life. And no one comes to the father. But by me, oh, they just hated him for that. When Jesus said things like, hey, you know what? In my father's house, are many mansions. Now that makes me kind of happy, doesn't it? You, David, your mansion's going to be next to mine. You know, I'm going to keep an eye on you for an eternity, brother. In my daddy's house are many mansions. And they thought, what are you talking about? You're calling him father again. They hated him for that. They did. Jesus said things to his listeners they never heard before. Oh, and I'll tell you one that really got them because they were up close and personal on this one. When Jesus said, he that is without sin cast the first stone. Jargon that they had never heard before. That word sin that Jesus used is used one time in the New Testament. And Jesus pulled the right word out on him right there because he was literally saying, if you have never committed a sin in your entire life, then go ahead and kill her. And that's why the Bible says from the oldest to the youngest, they dropped their stones and they had to walk away. And Jesus stood there with her. 
Oh, it's a good thing they weren't there anymore, man. They would have really been mad when he said, woman, where are your accusers? And he said, neither do I accuse you. Wait a minute, the Pharisees would have said. We stayed up all night setting this woman up. We went over there and drug her out of the house. We caught her in the very act. You're going to let her off the hook that easy? And then he said to her some beautiful words. He said, leave your life of sin. He said, I'm empowering you to go ahead and leave your life of sin. Isn't that beautiful? This is the kind of God we're connected to. This is the kind of Jesus that loves us. Oh, friends, I could stay here until the cows come home and tell you all the things that Jesus said that made the Pharisees mad, but we need to move along. And what was it that Jesus came to do? He came to show them the Father's heart. They had never known Daddy's heart. All they knew was daddy's commands, but they didn't know his heart. He came to show them the father's heart. He came to put a tourniquet around the neck of the law and to amputate the old covenant from the new covenant. He came to release the remediation qualities of grace and to remove our contaminant called sin. Amen. Amen. We know that sin is a contaminant. Well, I don't think anybody would disagree with that, but believers will fight you when you tell them this, if you told them that the law is also a contaminant when it's mixed with grace, they'll fight you on that one. Let's not argue with one another. Let's reason together from the scriptures, okay? Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 to 14. Look at these words. It's kind of saying what Romans already said. It says, for all who rely on the works of the law. What are the works of the law? The works of the law are the deeds or the commandments prescribed by the Mosaic law. That's the works of the law. It's the Mosaic law system. There's 613 commandments, 365s you better nots, and 248s you better. Together that makes 613 commandments. That's the works of the law. And the Bible says, for all who rely on that system, all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. You know what? I don't know. You've got to really do some gymnastics in your mind to get away from the truth that's sitting right there in front of us. And you know what? I looked at those scriptures for years. I don't know. My eyes must have just glazed over. I must have just saw them a different way. But man, can you really? I mean, are you kidding me? All who rely. In other words, what it's saying is if you are putting your trust in getting to heaven someday, if you're putting your trust in a relationship with God, if you're putting your trust of eternal life in the works of the law, he said, you are still under a curse. He says, as it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Now look at these words. Clearly no one who relies on the law is justified. That means declared innocent, declared righteous, declared pure. He said, no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. In other words, the apostle Paul is saying relying on the works of the law is like bringing a plumber's toolbox when what is needed is a first aid kit. He said, man, you're just, you're just out of step. Weren't you listening? I said, bring the AED machine. You brought a plumber's toolbox. A monkey wrench ain't going to help this guy. He said, to rely on the works of the law is like putting a tourniquet around a mosquito bite. <laughs> That's just sheer nonsense. That's foolishness. Remember, tourniquets are for extreme bleeding. Mosquito bites you. Bring the tourniquet. No. And to rely on the law when Jesus shed his precious blood, when Jesus shed his precious love for us, and to say, that wasn't enough, and I'm going to need to rely on doing this and this foolishness. It's just crazy. Continuing what he's saying, he says, the law is not based on faith. You see, you can give me a set of rules to do, and I don't have to have any love in my heart to do these things. I don't have to have any mercy working in me. I don't have to have any compassion. It's just a checklist. Listen, when I go mow the yard, I don't feel like I'm mowing it in love. I mean, I care about my yard, but I don't feel like, oh, I just love you so much. I just love you so much. No, see, that was on my checklist to do today and I got it off my checklist, okay? And so what he's saying here, he's saying the law is not based on faith. 
The operating software of the new covenant is faith. And he's saying, when you bring in the law, he said, you're not operating on faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says, the person who does these things will live by them. Watch what it says now. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. I love that. By becoming a curse for us. In other words, he took our place. Do you see that? He took our place. Listen, man. You know, I've said something probably similar to this. It just came back to my heart. I'm telling you, if a man walked in here with a machine gun and said, man, Mark, I'm just going to splatter you all over this pulpit up here if you don't let me take your wife with me. <laughs> I would just say, you can't listen, buddy. You can't have her. I mean, I would try to reason with the guy until I got close enough to break his bones, but I'm, are you hearing me? I'm, I'm sorry. I'll probably have to edit that out. I'm, you know, <laughs> I'm sorry. Oh, that's the man side of me. I mean, come on, man. Sometimes you got to do folks in, you know what I mean? No, but I, I would just say, listen, you can't have her. And if one of us need to go, then take me. Now think about this. Christ stood naked on a cross. I mean, he didn't have any little garments on. Yes, they have to cover him for television, but he was naked. That's the way they crucified people. His mama at the base of the cross and his apostle John and hundreds of people sneering and jeering and mocking him. Yet he hung on an old rugged cross because of love. And you're going to let the law come around him and say he needs the help of that? No, his blood worked, friends. His blood was sufficient. Hallelujah. It says, he redeemed us from the curse of the law. Watch what he did by becoming a curse for us. He took our place. What kind of love is this? I, I, I don't understand this much love. I just receive it by faith. Becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. Some say hung on a tree. And then it says, he redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. When the remediation expert that you've hired arrives at your home, I'll tell you what they're going to do. They're going to come to the door with absolute confidence, total confidence in their ability to do whatever you need to get done. Why? Because they've got schooling behind them. They've got certifications. They've been equipped. And uh, their license bear this out. Friends, let me tell you something. The Holy Spirit is the greatest and most thorough remediation expert of all times. And when he does his work in us, he removes all the contaminants of sin, all the threats of separation, all the judgment, and then he seals us, the Bible says, unto the day of redemption so that we can never be contaminated ever again. You can never be contaminated again. Isn't that wonderful news? You can never be contaminated in your spirit ever again. Now, in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 30, from, I'm going to read this from the Amplified Classic Edition. It says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, do not offend or vex or sadden him by whom you were sealed. Key words, by whom you were sealed. Who were you sealed by? Holy Spirit. Marked, branded as God's own, secured for the day of redemption of final deliverance from Christ from the evil and consequences of sin. Now let's ask the question. I mean, let's address the elephant that just walked in the room. How is it that we sadden or grieve the Holy Spirit? That sounds kind of like a contaminant. It's if we can make him sad, if we can grieve him. How is it that we do that? We are in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 30. Anytime you read scripture, you need to read it in context. You need to look at verses before it. You need to look at verses after it. That's called context. So we're in verse 30 right now. So now let's add verse 29, the one in front of it, and we'll add verses 31 and 32 also. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29 through 32. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, 
with whom you were sealed unto the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. These scriptures, I'm telling you, have intimidated believers for centuries. The thought that a believer can somehow grieve the Holy Spirit, that's terrifying to a lot of believers. I mean, what is it that I do that I grieve him? I mean, I don't want to make him sad. What is it I've done that have made him sad? Many people have been taught that if we grieve him, that like a dove, he'll fly away. That is simply not true. That kind of teaching is a tourniquet around the heart, friends. These scriptures are not referring to the Holy Spirit grieving because of our less than perfect behavior. If that was the case, he would be in a constant state of grief because someone's always disappointing doing something, right? He would be in a constant state of grief and the Holy Spirit is full of joy. How do we know that? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, meekness, faithfulness, self-control. We know these are the fruit of the Spirit. In other words, he's given us what he is. He's given us what he exudes. So he would be in a constant state of grieving or we'd have to always go back to this little checklist in verses 31 and 32 and go right there, that bitterness and that rage and that anger and that clamor or whatever it may be. That's what makes the Holy Spirit grieve and stuff like that. Ridiculous and nonsense. Let me ask you to just do an experiment. Just do this when you get home tonight. I want you to make yourself a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, okay? And I want you to take a hefty Ziploc bag, and I want you to zip that sandwich in that hefty Ziploc bag, and I want you to put it in a big mixing bowl, and I want you to fill it full of water, and then take something and lay it right on top of that sandwich so you submerge it. Overnight, just let it sit there for a good 24 hours. You know what? I guarantee something. That sandwich will be just as dry coming out as it was going in. Why? Because it has been sealed. Now, friends, if a hefty Ziploc bag can seal a sandwich, how much more can the Holy Spirit of God seal us? We are sealed, the Bible says, until the day of redemption. So what is grieving the Holy Spirit? It's when we fail to minister grace to our listeners and we put them back under the bondage of the law. In other words, we reintroduce the contaminants of mold and lead and asbestos. Or in our, the believer's case, we reintroduce the contaminants of sin. We, we're in a sin management business. We're in a sin pointing out business. We reintroduce the need to perform. We reintroduce them to condemnation. Those are the very toxins that Jesus shed his blood to remediate from us. You say, wait a minute. Wait a minute, Mr. Mark. Isn't the law good? Doesn't the Bible say the law is good? Yes, the law is good. Well, you say, man, you make it sound like it's bad. It is for believers. You say, oh, wait a minute now. You saying something is good and bad at the same time? Friends, listen to me. Fire is good in my oven. Fire is bad on my body. A cup of water is good in my stomach. A cup of water is terrible in my lungs. Hair is good on my head. Hair is bad in my food. Friends, there are times when things can be good and things not so good at the very same time. See, Jesus shed his blood and what he did is he did away with the old covenant. So if it's under the old covenant, that's the law that we're talking about, then it's not a good thing for us to say, I have to obey that to be right with God. So because of contrary teachings about grace, I'm going to be honest with you. It's easy to get confused with the truth that we have been remediated from all contaminants and sealed until the day of redemption. If we allow the tourniquet of the law to tighten itself around our lungs, you know what we do? We forfeit the very breath to declare the central truth that God has forever forgiven us through Jesus's once for all sacrifice on the cross. Friends, grieving the Holy Spirit is when we fail to allow the remediation graces of God 
to become our reality and the realities of the hearers or the reality of the listener. Because what are we doing? If we're not speaking grace, we're probably speaking the rhetoric of the law and putting them back under the bondage of the law. The Apostle Paul said these words in Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. He said, finally, my brothers and sisters, and he says, rejoice in the Lord. He's saying, listen, man, I know I've told you some tough stuff through the first part of this letter, but come on, rejoice in the Lord. Know that your name is written where it's written. Know that you're a child forever. He said, you've got a lot to rejoice about. So finally, rejoice in the Lord. And he says, it is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again. And it is a safeguard for you. And then he says something really strange. He says, watch out for those dogs. He's not talking, friends, about four-legged dogs, unfortunately. He's talking about two-legged dogs called Judaizers. That's what he's talking about. Now, this is strong language. I know I wish we could just kind of go around this and cut out around that, but if the Apostle Paul, the greatest apostle of the New Testament, is talking like this, then I think we can learn something from him. He said, watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. When the Apostle Paul says, it's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you, he's basically saying, you know what? Repetition is good. It's the motherhood of learning. And that's why we are big proponents and we propagate the message. You know what? Keep letting this message drip in your heart. Time and time again. Because you know what it does? Chases the dogs away. It's beautiful. In case you were wondering what Paul's getting at, he's basically saying you cannot walk in victory until your heart is fully persuaded that there is nothing that your flesh can do, nothing that your flesh can contribute toward Christ's finished work in order to make our covenant more binding. Did you kind of catch me on that? In other words, he's saying there's nothing that you can add to his finished work. He has sealed you without your assistance. You just said, yes, I put my faith in Christ. You are sealed at that moment until the day of redemption. You contributed nothing. And then he continues, he says, for it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put, there he goes, no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence. He says, if someone else thinks that they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, he said, I have more. He's basically saying, listen, you want to compare resumes? Bring it on. And he gets into a little bit of his resume. He said, I was circumcised on the eighth day. He said, I'm of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. He said, I am a Hebrew of Hebrews in regard to the law. In other words, the Apostle Paul, if anybody knew the law, I mean, that is... I think one of the strong evidences of this gospel of grace is because you took a man named Saul at one time who knew the law like nobody's business. He was a Pharisee of Pharisee, a Hebrew of Hebrews. And for him to convert, you have to understand, there had to be a powerful revelation for him to be able to convert like that. He says, Hebrew of Hebrews in regard to the law, a Pharisee as for zeal, persecuting the church as for righteousness based on the law, he said faultless. In other words, he's saying, listen, if you could rewind my videotape and watch my life, he said, you wouldn't find a fault in me. He said, I was that good. And I knew this law. I knew it. But in spite of the Apostle Paul's impressive credentials and his training and his equipping, and he trained under the Jewish rabbi Gamaliel, Paul eventually came to the revelation that he needed the one that remediates, namely Jesus Christ. He knew the law was insufficient to bring him the love that he was looking for, to bring him the joy that he was looking for, to bring him the peace. All it gave him was knowledge. And the Bible says that knowledge puffs up. That's what it does. Now, there are English words that seem so similar to us that it's hard for most people to explain what the differences are. Let me give an example. Many people think that the word refurbish and the word remodel are the same word, but they're different, friends. 
You see, to refurbish a home means you freshen it up. You brighten up that space. It can be something as simple as cleaning or redecorating. It can come through a coat of paint on the walls. Friends, the Holy Spirit did not come to do a work in us just to freshen us up. He didn't come to just refurbish us. Come on. I mean, we can do that for one another. You ever see two monkeys in a zoo, man? They'll just sit there and pick at each other. Come on, man. They do, man. What are they doing? They're refurbishing one another, I guess. I don't know what they're eating. Bugs, dandruff, whatever. I've heard all kinds of things. But I mean, come on. The Holy Spirit didn't just come to part our hair on a different side of our, our head, you know, and to put lipstick on us and a little makeup in the makeup room. No, he didn't come to just give us a, a little bit of a makeover. That's refurbish. Now, remodel. Remodel is different than refurbish. See, if I own a three-bedroom home with one bath, and I say, you know what, I don't need three bedrooms, but I would like two baths. Well, if I turn one bedroom into a bath, now I've got a two-bedroom, two-bath home. You know what I've just done? I have changed the model of that home from a three-bedroom, one-bath to a two-bedroom, two-bath. I have remodeled that home. What I've done is I have changed some structure. I have changed the appearance of things. That's what it means to remodel. But I'm telling you, the Holy Spirit didn't just come to go, hmm, let's just move some things around a little bit. No, he didn't even come to do that. There's also a difference between renovation and remediation. To renovate means we restore something back to its original condition. In other words, we renovate the plumbing. We don't change anything. We just take the plumbing out. We put new plumbing in. We take the electrical out. We put electrical in. We take the same floors. We sand them down. That's renovation, okay? And so literally what renovation is referring to is the restoring of something. It's talking about restoration. And this is what David was getting at in Psalm 23 when he said... He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. David said those words. The word restoreth that David used comes from the Hebrew word shub. I'm not trying to impress you with some Hebrew word, but this is the word shub. I do like what it's made with though. Shub is made with the sheen, which represents a crown, kind of looks like a crown. See it on the right? That's the first letter. The middle letter is the Vav. Their Vav is like our U. That's where, why we hear the word Shub. It's the Vav. The picture for Vav is nail. In the Hebrew, the picture for Vav is a nail. And then we have Bet, the last letter. So that's how we have Shub. Bet literally refers to the Son of God. It is the second letter of the Hebrew alphabet. You have Aleph, which means Father, and right next to the Father is Bet. Aleph, Bet. That's where we get our word alphabet. Aleph, Bet. Bet refers to the Son of God. He's right next to the Father. On the way to church, he said this. He said, do you see the symbolism there? That through the crown and through the nails, the Son of God restored you. Isn't that beautiful? The Bible says, he restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. The word restoreth that David used in the Hebrew there literally means to turn back. Turn back to what? What was David saying? Well, it might help you to know that David did not actually write Psalm 23 from the pasture when the sheep were sleeping. David wrote this psalm later in life after he had become king and he was walking the stately halls of the palace. He wrote this from the palace as he was able to turn back his attention, turn back his remembrance, turn back his mind to a time when he was in the pasture, friends. I'm telling you, friends, pastures are okay because it was in the pasture that that man acquired his temperament to become king. See, you have so many people today that want to become king. They want to become president. They want to become a man of power, a woman of power. But they've not known what it's like to live in a pasture. They've not known what it's like to deal with sheep that don't want to mind you all the time. And then they get into those positions and they find frustration abounding. When David became king of Israel, he took on responsibilities that were far greater than 
the pasture. But again, it was the pasture that tempered him to become king. I believe that when David wrote the words, he restoreth my soul, he turns back my soul, David was again just putting himself in remembrance of when he was just a teenager tending sheep. I want to tell you something. Whatever God's assigned you to, don't you think it's too small? Don't you ever think it's too small? The Bible says, despise not the day of small beginnings. David was reflecting back, turning back to a time when his dependence was totally upon God. Reflecting back, turning back to a time when as a child, he felt innocent. He felt pure. Do you remember when you first came to Christ? How innocent you felt? How forgiven you felt? How pure you felt? Then religion came along and told you that you needed to refurbish a little bit. You need to remodel a little bit. You need to renovate yourself a little bit. Because there's something wrong with your heart. Remediation does even a different work than refurbish, remodel, or renovation. Remediation is the permanent removal and disposal of harmful contaminants and pollution. Remember that. That's what remediation does. It takes away the harmful things. And that's exactly what God has done. He's taken away our sin. John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away. He remediates. He takes away that which is harmful, the pollutant called sin. David the shepherd boy, the one that had a king living on the inside of him, was also bombarded with emotional struggles. So don't find it strange, friends, when you have emotional struggles. David struggled. Struggles that he wanted to leave in the green pastures. Struggles that he wanted to let sink beneath the still waters. David came to know the tourniquet pressure of kingly responsibilities. David was acquainted with the heartache of a dysfunctional family. Come on. We all wish we had a perfect family. Everybody just behaved. Everybody got along. Everybody was saved, filled with the Holy Spirit, and everything was just perfect. But it wasn't even the same in David's family. He had sons that wanted to kill him, and he had all kinds of things that were going on. David even suffered from the consequences of some of his own bad decisions. David came to the realization that his slingshot and his club, his natural weapons, natural weapons, slingshot, the club that he would wield at uh, wild animals, the very things that he defeated lions with and wolves and bears, he came to the realization that those weapons were powerless to change his heart. We hear his cry from Psalm 51, verses 1 through 5. This is what he says. David said, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. Oh, look at that. Oh, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Let me stop for just a second. Do you see what David is doing here? David is under an old covenant. So David does not have the revelation that all of his sins have been taken away. It is lamb by lamb in David's day. It's sacrifice by sacrifice. For us, it's one sacrifice. His name is Jesus. So he is walking back and he's going, man, I still got this struggle with transgressions and iniquities and sin. He's crying out for God's love because he knows the character of God. He knows that God is loving and compassionate and kind. And he knows that God has the power to blot out his transgressions. But at the same time, he's saying, my sin is always in front of me. It's always around me. It's always before me. And then he says these words. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. And then he says, powerful set of words here. He says, surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Even under an old covenant, David has the mindfulness that his God is the God of mercy. He's the God of love. He's the God of compassion. And all of that trumps all of his issues of life. And they trump ours as well. But at the same time, David realizes that he has a wound that won't heal. 
He has a scab that will never fall off, rotting flesh below the tourniquet of his heart. It's the scab of transgression and iniquity and sins. And he sought relief from the itchiness of this scab as he was crying out to God. So my question is, should we follow David's thoughts? Should we follow David's patterns? David's protocol, if you will. The answer is no. Why not? Because we're not under the same covenant, nor the same consequences that David was under. The remediation qualities of grace by faith in the shed blood of Jesus Christ have run their course in heaven's ways, friends. In Romans chapter 5, verses 15, 16, and 17, we find this truth manifested. It says, But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to many, nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation. Really? One sin? Total condemnation? Yes. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation. But look at this. But the gift followed many trespasses. The gift of what? The gift of grace. The gift of a new heart. Followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? What did uh, the Apostle Paul do here? He reached back and he grabbed the first Adam, and he reached out and he grabbed the last Adam. And he laid them side by side. And he said, all this that he did just with one sin, he said, this man took care of with one sacrifice. One gift to you. Expunged, wiped out, removed, deleted every single thing that Adam had originally done to us. That's how powerful his blood is, Brother Bob. This is how powerful his blood is. There's nothing like it. You say, well... My new created heart can get itself into a state whereby it might need to get remediated again. That's simply not true. We are sealed until the day of redemption. Inside that seal is your heart. It is your spirit man. The very core of man. That's what heart means. Core. We think about the heart of an apple. What is the heart of an apple? It's the core of an apple. The heart is the very inner being of man. And it's sealed until the day of redemption. Believers in Christ have more than just a remediated heart. We have a new heart. Daddy did not just refurbish, remodel, renovate, remediate our hearts. He took the old heart out and he gave us a new heart. So what was David's response to the sin that was always before him? You've already heard him in verses 1 through 5. He's crying out. What is his continued response? Chapter 51 still, verses 10 through 12. He said, well, then let's just go to extreme, kind of like Peter did. You know, you're not going to wash my feet, but now wash my hands, feet, and my head. Here's David's response. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation and uphold me with thy free spirit. So this is David's cry. He's saying, Daddy, we've been down this road so many times. Let's do something different this time. These lambs are not working. These sacrifices are not working. They only work for a little while. They make me feel better for a little while. So why don't we just create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me and don't cast me away from thy presence anymore and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Old covenant thinking, yet we're still singing that rhetoric today in churches that God is going to take his Holy Spirit from you, that God is going to have to 
freshen up your heart. He's going to have to refurbish your heart, renovate it. No, friends, he's done a perfect job and he has sealed us until the day of redemption. David cried out for a new heart in those scriptures and a new spirit, not just a refurbished, remodeled, renovated, or even a remediated heart. David, listen to me, is asking for a heart that only the cross can provide. That's it. Only the cross can bring a heart like that. You see, under the new covenant of grace, I want you to remember this. Our hearts were more than refurbished. Our hearts were more than remodeled. Our hearts were more than renovated. Our hearts were more than remediated. Our hearts were replaced. Hey, I'm about to celebrate 25 years in Christ this coming August. I'm telling you, he didn't just refurbish me because everything I've ever had refurbished in life gets dirty again. And I know I'm not dirty anymore. His blood worked on me. He gave me a new heart. He replaced my heart. That's the message Ezekiel was getting at when he could prophesy into the atmosphere, when he could prophesy into the future. I like it how it reads in the Message Bible. Ezekiel chapter 11 and verse 19, he says, oh, the days are coming. He said, when I will give you a new heart. He said, I'll put a new spirit in you. I love this. I will cut out your stone heart and replace it with a red-blooded, firm-muscled heart. Now, friends, listen, all this is is a paraphrase, but the original language says something very, very similar. He's just saying your heart won't look like anything like it used to look like. The key word is, I'm going to cut out your old heart. Listen, you can't live without a heart. So if you're going to cut one out, you're going to have to put something in its place. It'd be pointless to cut off the old heart and put the old heart back in. No, he's going to put a new heart inside of us. Red-blooded, firm, muscled heart, strong heart. A strong heart that when opposition comes against us, we can stand. We can stand and we can declare the things that Jesus said, even the very things that used to make the Pharisees matter than the Dickens. We can declare the goodness of God. Isn't that beautiful? Friends, we have one heart, and it is a perfect heart. Our soul now, which is our mind, it's our will, it's our emotions, on the other hand. I want to be honest with you there. That part of us is in an ongoing state of renovation. That part, your mind has not caught up with all this lovely truth yet, all this wonderful grace. Your mind is being renewed. It's in that renovation. It's in that remediation stage right now. But the more the gospel, the truth of God drips in your heart, the more it keeps flushing out those old paradigms, those old ideologies, that old mindset. It just keeps flushing it out. What are the results? As that new heart and the truths of that new heart begin to bubble up and out of us into our mind and into our will and into our emotions. You know what? And then we become kind and we become compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in God, Christ forgave you. We speak wholesome communication over one another as we release the gospel of grace into the ears of our listeners. We are forever changed by the remediation qualities of grace. Friends, the wonderful truths that reach out to us from the message today are these. We are declared righteous, innocent, and pure by grace through faith. Jesus' once-for-all sacrifice remediated and disposed of every harmful contaminant. What is our response? We rejoice in the Lord. What else would your response be? I'm happy. I'm rejoicing in the Lord because I'm looking back. I've turned back to look at where I was at at one time and where he's brought me. And it's by his amazing grace that all of this has been done. So what is my response? I rejoice. I'm happy. 
We do not wear the bandage of shame nor the tourniquet of condemnation. We are no longer under the law, but under grace. Hey, friends, you know what? There's a spiritual hotline for this. It's 1-555-FINISHED WORK. That's your spiritual hotline. Come on, Jesse. Friends, the tourniquet of the cross worked. It cut off the oxygen and blood supply to the old covenant law so that the flesh under the cross could die with Christ. The nails that held Jesus to the cross pierced our sickness. The nails that held Jesus to the cross pierced our pain. The nails that held Jesus to the cross pierced our guilt and shame and fear and condemnation and isolation and contaminants and every wicked way of us. It pierced all of these things, friends. And I love it. It pierced that general overall feeling of hopelessness. I heard a friend of mine the other day say this. He said, I, I woke up the other morning. He said, I was just laying there. And he said, I've just felt nothing. He said, I just like, it was like nothing. I, I mean, I felt no joy, no peace. I felt nothing. The Holy Ghost filled believer. And he said, you know what my response was? I began to thank daddy for where he's brought me from. I began to thank my papa. I began to rejoice in the Lord. And I'm telling you, there's so much power in your worship. There's so much power in rejoicing. And sometimes rejoicing cannot be heard by the person sitting next to you. You can be just rejoicing silently in your spirit. But there is power. And he said, within just a moment, he said, I hadn't felt the Lord's presence in a while. He said, but within just a moment, I could feel this intense pressure and this intense presence of the Lord. And it felt so awesome and so good. Come on, I know I'm talking to somebody that's been through the same thing. I've walked through situations like that where I'm like, Daddy, where are you? I can't see you. I can't feel you. We grieve the Holy Spirit by allowing the evil dogs, those Judaizers, the ones with the Judaizer doctrine, to bark out their message of the law through us. That is what the Apostle Paul was getting at when he talked about unwholesome language in Ephesians 4.29 when he said, do not let any unwholesome communication proceed out of your mouth, but only that which is for edifying, the use of edifying, that it might minister grace to the hearers. We grieve him when we speak law into somebody's life. Why? Because the law is not a helper. Listen, you know, Jesus said, if a man asks for a loaf of bread, would you give him a stone? This guy's looking for grace and you're trying to give him law? Does that make any sense? No, it doesn't make any sense. Our message is unambiguous. Jesus plus nothing releases God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness. We have traded our plumber's toolbox and our first aid kit for a dove that will never fly away. I'm talking about the sweet Holy Spirit the one who seals us until the day of redemption. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. Jesus has given us a clean heart, a right spirit, and a presence that never needs renewing. These truths restore the joy of our salvation as they are married together with the remediation qualities of grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Daddy, I want to thank you. I want to thank you. Oh, my goodness. As we look not only back, but we look side to side and in front of us and up and down. As we look in every direction, we see the working of the Holy Spirit. The one who says, I go before you and I'm your rear guard as well. I want to thank you, Father, that the Holy Spirit did a perfect work in us. The Bible says we have been made perfect by his once for all sacrifice on the cross. So I want to thank you for that, Daddy. I want to thank you, Father, that even as uh, that truth is seeping out of our spirit and leaking over into the realm of our mind and our will and our emotions, I want to thank you there's a contagiousness about it, that what's in our spirit gets in and on our soul, man. 
so that we can be kind to one another, compassionate, loving one another, even as Christ loved us, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave us. So thank you, Father, for this wonderful truth. I want to thank you, Father, that nobody is justified by the law. We are justified by faith in Jesus' shed blood. That makes it so simple. Every man, every woman, and every boy can hear the invitation to come, and we can respond to that invitation and be sealed until the day of redemption. Thank you, Father, for the remediation qualities of grace. In Jesus' name, amen.